Hi, I'm Dan Kurtzke, and tonight we're gonna we're gonna be breaking format a little bit and talk about both Green Lantern Mosaics number 17 and 18 together. Uh, frankly, if if I devoted an entire episode to just 17, the combined runtime of the opening and closing would be greater than the amount of time I'd be spending talking about the issue, because you know, getting right into it. This was a colossal disappointment of an issue, and yeah, you know, I've I've said this before. Like, if this wasn't the second to last issue, then it probably wouldn't be. It would probably be fine. You know, not fine. It still wouldn't live up to the standards of a lot of the rest of the series. But it, when when the series is ending, especially when it's this close to the end, these pages are valuable real estate and. If, if you do anything other than get the most out of them, especially when I've seen how much amazingness they can get out of this book, it just, it, uh, it hurts. It hurts as a reader. It hurts as somebody who loves the series. Basically, uh, as you remember, the, you know, the, uh, the skies of all are filled with the ship's from all the worlds who lost cities to the mosaic, and they've they've come to take their people home, and the Justice League came to Oa to to supervise the evacuation and make sure it goes smoothly and non-violently, and basically the entire issue is just the heroes from Earth traveling around the mosaic and and telling the different civilizations, hey, you get to go home, and. Some of them are overjoyed and can't wait to leave, and some of them are really sad and freaked out or just decide they want to stay. And that's basically it. <laughs> Not a lot else happens. I mean, it's it's one of those where they took 22 pages to do what they could have probably done in five pages because it was just them hitting home the same point over and over again. and. I mean, granted, they did give a few different reasons for why the different races would want to stay, but I don't know. It it didn't it didn't measure up to what they could have done, and I I feel kind of bad because I'm talking about you know conceptually what could have happened being better than what did happen because if that's how you look at everything, it becomes an impossible standard that nothing can ever live up to. But but uh, I don't know. It it felt like this was padded out and. I can understand how, like in the idea stage, how this could have been viewed as something that this whole series was leading up to, because when it started, the entire population wanted off Oa by any means necessary, and now they've gotten to a point where, you know what, they kind of feel at home, and they don't want to go. So that in and of itself, that on its face, that's, that's good, I like that, I just didn't need to see the same scene play out over and over again with different characters for almost an entire issue. 
at the end there, one of the Amazon ships decides, you know what, we're not waiting around anymore. We're we're getting our people out of here. So they project a force field from one of their ships around the Amazon city on Oa and launch what they call a Hellburner, which is essentially a gigantic fireball that's supposed to essentially nuke every other city on the mosaic except for their city which they protected and oh no what's gonna happen yeah i guess the only other thing of note in this issue is that it gives a closing to john and rose's relationship and yeah you know, some time ago i posed the question of you know what if they were back on earth would they stay together if they were on earth could they work out if they were on earth and I think we got a pretty definitive answer of no. Rose goes to John, you know, because, you know, Katma's back, remember? And Rose says to John, you know, is that really your wife? Uh, what does that mean for me? And he just looks at her and says, Omega and Alpha Rose. Big O for Omega, little A for Alpha. And then there's this, this great panel where he just walks away from her, and it's an all-white background completely silent and it's a nice little moment and it's him he's like walking tall away and she's like kind of crouched down on the ground too which i don't know i guess then itself probably says something about them because i mean it was never about love or sex or anything with them it was he was her surrogate security blanket and she was his i guess catma fill-in you know she gave him like the conceptual idea of security and family and normalcy, and I guess I guess for a while there she was kind of the example of what he was trying to do working out. But I don't know now. Now that it's all kind of coming apart, and John's learned a great deal about himself and about where this whole place came from, I guess they don't really. Yeah, they they don't really need to pretend anymore. So actually, maybe they would still be together on Earth because I don't, I don't know that John would come to this realization unless he went through what he went through to the extent that he went through it. So that's that's basically issue 17 right there. Okay Art by Joe Felice. Again, I really wish Cully Hamner could have finished this out. But um, uh, all right, so here it is. Green Lantern Mosaic number 18. The end of Mosaic. This is the final issue. Oh, jeez. And it opens up with John in front of a mushroom cloud yelling at the reader. Like, right at us. The Mosaic world destroyed by an Amazon Hellburner. It's, it's, it's a really good opening image. And, like, it leads right into a double page spread of just this burnt cinder of a city, of a series of cities, and bodies everywhere, and the ground is red with blood and it's debris, and, and John's freaking out. He is freaking the hell out. And then he just stops. <laughs> and it looks right back at the rear and said, and basically says, yeah, yeah, alright, not really. Here's what actually happened. <laughs> and, and he explains to us that, yeah, that big fireball in the sky, yeah, he snagged that with his ring, and he he stopped it from being dangerous, and they put a clamp on all of the Amazon ships, and then when all the other heroes tried to intervene, because, you know, John's 
assaulting a fleet. <laughs> he beats the crap out of, out of the entire Justice League, basically. All of this is told in, like, one big montage image, too, so it's kind of great. And, yeah, it's it works itself out to a logical conclusion. You know, every person on the mosaic is given a choice. They can go home, or they can stay. And I don't think it says it's a 50-50 split, but, you know, a, a good chunk of them leave, and a, a good chunk stay around, too. And I guess as this book is to do, it's, it's kind of... It's kind of embracing this tradition of breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader by... Uh, it's it's talking about this extradition from the Mosaic as kind of the end of the series, you know? Yeah, at one point, like, a gigantic construct of John is just kind of crouching over the Mosaic in total and just saying to the reader, you know, oh, the stories I could tell you if you could only stay... The kidnapping raids on the feel-goods when the whole mosaic discovers how soothing they are. Then there's the new the new religion that spreads over the mosaic after the mind slugs visit the inbred burg of Beaver Junction. Uh, there's, God, there's there's apparently this race called the Anachrons that just they blip back and forth throughout time so fast and so much like they can't even keep track of like what period they're from or what they're representing or what their culture is it, it, this is basically all just like Gerard Jones kind of teasing the reader with like these are the stories you almost got these are the stories maybe you would have read these stories already if we didn't have to head towards a conclusion so quickly or these are the stories that would come by issue 25 or beyond yeah uh, he references John discovering that the seemingly empty hole in the mosaic is actually inhabited by a very nasty breed of invisible beings. I don't know if he's talking about the yellow zone or not, and I'll pro we'll probably never know. Um, and that uh, that big empty city that only had the two people in it, he called them Mr. and Mrs., is apparently a hatchery for 18 billion larvae that... For some, <laughs> for some warped reason, have this 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 drive to be eaten by people, a lot eaten alive, <laughs> like people who don't know that they're larvae. Oh, it's so it looks so weird, and it's so. Oh God, I wish I could have seen it. And then he, and then just like that, he just fades kind of back into the comic. He's like, yeah, the stories I could tell you. And then he just goes back to being just John doing John stuff with the regular people and kind of explaining to the reader by way of talking to Rose just what the hell happened to him. And I guess the the big explanation for this whole thing is that uh, this is this is another one of those where it's it's so big and sudden that they really like. I'm I'm not going to fault Gerard Jones for any of this because he wanted to give this to us over time. Hell, we might not even have been at this point 25 issues in. But, you know, okay, so what it basically is is John was born with the potential to become something more than human. He was be and I I don't just mean like like he was born with a metagene or anything like that. He was basically born with the potential to ascend to godhood. And, you know, the, the reason that 
so much of his life has been revolving around death and death he's caused and the death of people associated with him is because he's he kind of just naturally straddles the line between life and death we got katma back because he pulled her back to it you know and i guess by that extension chip died because he was around john before john understood what his power was you know and the guardians knew about this they knew by the time he was born, they knew there was going to be someone like him born on Earth. And eventually, Hal Jordan came across him, and the Guardians were like, that's a guy. That's a guy. Get him. Give him a ring. Because really, when you look at it, it, being a Green Lantern and attending to all those cosmic responsibilities and having to work your mind around using that kind of power that the ring lets you do, it's kind of like basic training for higher concept cosmic stuff like this your basic green lantern story is kind of like like mosaic for beginners you know i i hesitate to say mosaic for dummies because that's not what i mean you know you you know what i'm getting at here right right okay cool so yeah so the guardians knew like okay john was going to become something eventually but they had to let him find his own way there otherwise he would probably actively avoid it and choose to stay the man he is instead of letting himself become who and what he's going to become which is why you know that's why they let so many humans into the green lantern corps because they were looking for someone but once they found him that's why they allowed the green lantern corps to set up on earth for a while after it was like fractured and splintered down to just a handful of members it was all in the interest of john's development I mean, looking back on it, they probably thought the mosaic was a fantastic thing because it meant he was really coming a long way. It it does make me want to go back and read all of this again just to see, you know, now that I know the ins and outs and the details, like, okay, is it clear from the beginning? No, well, not the beginning of John's publication history, but the beginning of Gerard Jones' Green Lantern mosaic ness you know? Um, it does feel a little... You know, I don't know, because they're basically saying this is why, they're saying this is why Chip died, this is why Katma died, this is why Zanshi died. And as a retcon, I don't know if I really like that, at least not to that extent, although as an intellectual exercise and just something to think about, I kind of do, but it doesn't really go that far beyond that for me, and which I guess, you know, is just as well, because... Uh, we're not gonna have to think about this for very much longer. We'll get to that. Um, there's this cool moment where uh, Hal comes up to John and says, "You know, you keep talking about this new power you have. What the hell is it? Why, why don't you show me this new power that you've been talking about?" And John just there's this great page where John just gives him this look of, <laughs> you know what? Here, look at this. There goes that. He takes his ring off, sw like flips it up in the air like a coin, swallows it, and just explodes with green light. And now he's wearing a guardian's uniform. And yeah, you know, the first couple of times I read this, I didn't know really what to make of it. But I don't think it's supposed to be literally. Oh, he ate his ring and now has internal guardian powers. Yay! I think I think it's symbolic completely, and from a few different angles too. I think it's him 
very blatantly owning his power for one it's showing that you know the most powerful thing about him is what's inside him which which you know that harkens back to the entire cultural identity thing that he's been struggling with throughout this entire series and it was just a crazy fun visual and Hal's even like you're not trying to tell me you're a guardian he's like he said, don't tell me you have the power of a guardian he's like okay I won't tell you and he even mentions referring to the robe I always thought I'd look quite fetching in something red ha 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 god and John flies off and he finds those stairs again remember that big big intertwined not intertwined winding staircase and at the top of it is that door that he can't touch the knob to because it burns him. You know, something red is behind that door. And, well, first I should say, on the way up those stairs, he encounters, I think they were called the Minister X-Men from that dream he had a few issues ago. They kind of represented his, his uh, fractured and conflicted view on like what it means to be a black man and also fill all the other roles that he's trying to fill and this time no matter what they say to try and bring him down he just plows through them and he gets right to the heart of the matter and you know, he overcomes basically his own preconceptions about what he is and what he's supposed to be supposed to be in air bunnies and he moves on and he gets up to the top of the stairs touches the door handle after hesitating but it doesn't burn him and when he opens the door, something red is in there. It's Katma. It's Katma in her home, offering him a cup of coffee or tea. I forget what it is. And this is this is what he had been working towards. This is what this is what scared him because the things we want the most often scare us the most, you know. And and he even says to her, "Losing you." What does he say? What is it? Your death tore me in half. It was a cold blade in my soul for years, and she just says, the blade's gone now, John, and your two halves, I love this line, your two halves grew separate holes, and now they've come together in a twice as big soul. Which, I, that is so, that, like, that is so John Stewart, that is what happened. You know, he was broken down, went on this insane journey, you know, first first as a cosmic space cop of a Green Lantern and then as an existential world builder. And now he's remerged into this this more than I won't say more than human. I think he's very human. He's probably more human than he was before. But he's become something bigger and stronger and more complete than he was before any of this tragedy. And he just hugs her and says, I don't care. There are times where man doesn't need metaphysics. And he just hugs her, hugs his wife, who he hasn't seen for so long. John does get one brief little moment with Toby, where Toby apologizes for trying to get Guy Gardner to beat him up. And John just said, takes him aside and says, I'm not really, I'm not mad. And I'm not really leaving. We're gonna play Monopoly all the time, and and kind of you know someday when Toby's older, once he's learned more about what the world has to t teach him, 
Uh, then John will give Toby a ring just like the bigger kid. Which, okay, you know, that was a nice little... Uh, I still feel like, uh, poor Toby, you know, <laughs> there was so much potential with that character. I guess conceptually there was, but, but yeah, at least we got that, you know? Um, and from there, you know, we just have John kind of walking across the mosaic. Not all of it, but just walking through it. He goes past that chair made of faces in front of those like like those tentacle-y plants from the first page of the first issue just kind of bring the whole thing full circle and you know the glad girls are there and they want to play their game where they kill him <laughs> every day but you know the mosaic kids stop them which you know it's nice to see like they stuck around i don't know if their parents necessarily stayed but <laughs> they stuck around I wonder if the parents would miss them if they went back to uh, whatever. And we get to see some of the the other races that stayed, you know, the Zudarians, Tomar's people, who who love the fact that you know they're understanding the universe will triple by staying on the mosaic. And and John just makes his way to his piano because he's going to put on a concert for everybody who chose to stay around. And and uh, before he can start, Rose comes up to him, he hands him a, a jar of jam from uh, that mosaic fair that she's organizing, you know, where everybody, you know, brings some, one of their cultural dishes and, and it fosters kind of a commingling and a further understanding of each other. And she, they talked about this a few issues ago. And it's actually jam that she taught the berserkers how to make. And apparently they put a little blood in it because, you know, they're the berserkers, but, you know, whatever. And John, as he starts to play, he puts it on the top of the piano, and, and it's, it's a really significant thing, because this little jar of, this little jar of jam represents something that exists because of two different cultures coming together that otherwise never would have met before. And they did meet, and they put their differences aside, and they made something good. And that's what the mosaic is kind of about. And I think that's the underlying message that that Jar Jones might have been trying to hit home with this entire series. That it doesn't matter who you are, or where you're from, just get together, get over it, and make something good. And the final page of this series is John Stewart with a huge smile on his face. Well, a huge smile. I'll say a content smile on his face as he plays on his piano, as he's surrounded. The page is packed with all these different aliens just around him, listening to him play, taking in his performance, and filling the middle of the page with this line of music notes, like really big, bold, purple music notes flying over everyone. And they don't say it, but... I like to think that maybe this is a reference to the Tone Men, that, you know, ever since their issue way back, we had this concept of there's a harmony, there's a melody to the mosaic, that it's just below the surface, but it's not ready to be heard yet. It's not ready to be, to be, the residents of the, of this world aren't ready to be together living in harmony yet 
and now they are. And here is the music kind of bringing them all together. This book ends on the title of We'll See. Which, you know, as a reader at the time, that's basically, it basically sums up what the future of the mosaic is. What John's future, what all these people at Rose and Katma and everyone who stayed behind. We'll see. You know, they don't, you never know what will happen. Like, the book's gone away, but you don't know if it's going to to come back in some fashion, where it will be seen next, what the next plot development for it will be, if any at all. It's a very, it's one of those titles that would mean something to the reader at the time that it came out. The art this time around, it was uh, Luke McDonald again, and again, it was no Cully Hamner, but it was really nice. You know, the the cover was great. The opening splash page was great. The two-page spread of destruction. Almost everything in this was handled great. Like they did this amazing shaded John, like that image I talked about where he was the construct. Him was crouching over the mosaic, and it's washed out with green. And it's there's no black ink at all. It's just different shades of green. And it's, it's the colors deserves credit here too. It, it it was just a really nicely done issue great facial expressions wasn't completely consistent all the way through but you could tell the pages they put the most work into and they were the ones that needed to be sold the most you know the the big opening the big closing and the most fun bits they all got the most attention and it really worked out well in place of a letters page for this issue we have a two-page letter to the fans by Gerard Jones. He takes time out to thank all of his collaborators. Um, he, let's see, he confirms to everybody that no, there won't be any relaunches or miniseries or, or continuations in Green Lantern Corps quarterly. And just like in the middle of the issue where where through John he described to us like some of the stories he wanted to tell he goes on about some more of them here and something he says that really hit me was the whole John Stewart's transformation was intended to be only half the thrust of the series the other half to be stories of the mosaic world and its oddball inhabitants in the veins of issues four and eight in addition to those John himself hinted at in this issue there were so many others revolving around the 50 odd realms I created for the Mosaic Bible like the horde whose surface was barely touched back in the first Mosaic story in Green Lantern 14 through 17 I wanted to show how the feline fighters share thoughts with the solid made builders thoughts that radiate out from the big heads that's that's a race the big heads <laughs> who keep thinking grow 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 inspiring expansionist acts of love that others perceive as imperial uh, imperial conquest and he's like but what the heck what's done is done I, uh, oh my god we're supposed to get so many more like single issue stories of just crazy introspective ideas that were that were really the best thing about this book it, oh my god like those issues were in his head. Yeah, they were oh. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. And actually something someone I want to give a lot of credit to right here is someone who I don't think I've mentioned at all is Kevin Dooley, who was the editor on this book. Who apparently, according to Gerard, to Gerard Jones, 
told him from the beginning, you know, I'm going to respect your vision for the mosaic, and and duly fought for him all the way down the line, and and part of the reason mosaic got extended for an extra year after cancellation was because Kevin Dooley fought for it. So we got more than we have the bulk of this series because this editor believed in what Jar Jones wanted to do. And as as readers we usually think about, you know, we think about the characters, we think about the creators, and that's usually as far as it goes. We never think about like the big corporate part or the editorial part, but you know, at least in this case, like this is a big reminder that they're the reason why the stuff we love actually sees print. So thank you to Kevin Dooley for getting this book made and keeping this book out as long as it could have been, which was literally as long as it could have been, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and from there, you know, Jar Jones actually, he takes a moment out to thank all the people who wrote in so regularly to the letters column and even like shout out some of the letters he got that they never got a chance to print like there are a couple that really stood out and there were there are negative ones too that he he pointed to but the ones that really stood out to me were uh, there's uh, there was someone who was writing a play about race relations in Detroit and wanted to name his protagonist in the play Gerard Stewart in honor of the inspiration Mosaic had given him. And there's there's so many in here. But my favorite is um, someone by the name of Tony T.L. Young of Honolulu, who apparently turned Mosaic number one into a one-man stage show from based on the script. Imagine that. Like go back and read Mosaic number one. And imagine that as a one-man show on a stage. Oh God, <laughs> I, I want—I want to see that. Oh my God, I. My life's mission is now going to be to scour every scrap of video on the internet until I find this. I don't even know if it was ever recorded. That's your mission out there, people. Find this for me. I don't know if it doesn't exist. Make it yourselves and send it to me. <laughs> Oh man, and uh, he, he closes this out by saying, you know, this is, by talking about how this was the most personal and kind of introspective work he had ever done, Gerard Jones, that is. Um, actually, you know what, I'm just going to read this, the end of this part, just because after all he said with the series, he deserves to speak for himself. Despite the ultimate disappointment, Mosaic has been a delightful and rewarding experience. The way it all turned out has left me in grave doubt that I'll ever again try to do anything this personal or offbeat in comics, but I have no regret that I tried it when I had the chance. And looking back over these 18 issues, I'm pretty pleased with how it all worked out. I've enjoyed the fervent praise of those few of you who have really gotten into Mosaic, and I like to think that years from now, Mosaic back issues will still be floating around, dog-eared and coffee-stained and well-read, never preserved, pristine in mylar, finding new readers who can pull something of enjoyment or meaning from its pages. So what's next for me, for you, for John, for the Mosaic, for the Green Lantern Corps, for DC, for comics? 
How will the pieces of the shattered mosaic fall? And what new pictures will they make on the floor? Yeah, we'll see. Signed, Gerard Jones. And in there, he also mentions how he's working on Emerald Dawn 3, which is a project that never happened. And that's basically it. That is the end of Green Lantern Mosaic. Actually, I will I will say well, there's one little bit here in the letters column that I glossed over. Um, in the middle of a paragraph, he says, uh, Mosaic won't have the far-reaching impact I'd originally hoped for because of some big DC plans for late 93 and 94, including some major shakeups for Green Lantern. But it will affect what's to come in Green Lantern and Justice League International in the near future. Watch for a prominent appearance by the new Jon Stewart in Green Lantern number 49, shipping in November. And I don't know about the Justice League International book, because I haven't read... I've only read, like, two issues of that run from uh, from uh, this around this time period. But I do know Green Lantern 49 just does not have Jon Stewart in it. But, um, that's, that's less the point. Over the course of the series, I had been alluding to how there's there's one big reason for this book's cancellation that that never got brought up really in the letters column, and it just did now actually for the first time. Uh, but even then, it was cryptic as it had to be because you know spoilers and all that. But uh, the big reason Mosaic had to go away in the long run is that well. <laughs> I guess just to put this in context a little bit of the larger scheme of things, uh, Mosaic ended with issue 18 on a cover date of November 1993. Also cover dated November 1993 was Green Lantern 47, the final issue before the beginning of the, I think it's fair to call it infamous Emerald Twilight storyline that would give us, you know, the fall of Hal Jordan the destruction of the Green Lantern Corps and the establishment of Kyle Rayner as the one and only Green Lantern with the only power ring in the universe. So this book got its stay of execution basically to the last possible minute. Right down to the wire where the Green Lantern Corps, the Guardians, and Oa itself were gonna go away. You know, I, in a, the Zero Hour tie-in, Green Lantern number zero, Kyle actually has to blow up Oa to stop Parallax, but you know let's, let's, we're getting ahead, getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit. Cause what I wanted to do here, I wanted to just kind of bring everybody up to date to what happened to John after this, taking us up to the present. And all right, with you know with the Green Lantern concept streamlined, John Stewart moved over to the Dark Stars was issue twenty one of that series with a cover date of June nineteen ninety four. Uh, it was titled Second Chances, and this is the kind of Green Lantern ripoff team made by the controllers, and he actually joined <laughs> around the same time as Donna Troy, so this book was kind of a, a repository for people who couldn't be main characters in the Green Lantern book anymore. Um, you know, John's career as a Dark Star ended in Green Lantern 75, of all things, uh, with a cover date of July 1996. Uh, this is a story where Darkseid's son Graven attacked the planet Ran, you know, Adam Strange's world, uh, to get its Zeta Beam teleportation technology and 
because I mean, he couldn't get back to Apocalypse. He was exiled, so he wanted to zap himself there. Uh, the remaining Dark Stars went to stop him, but by the time Donna called in Kyle for help, Graven had already taken the team apart, and the battle left John crippled from the waist down. Then in November of 1996, DC gave us the final night event. It, an alien sun eater fed off Earth's sun, and Kyle had to convince Hal, who was still Parallax, uh, to come fix it, to come reignite it. But killing the sun eater and restarting the sun was going to be more than Hal could survive doing, apparently. So first he went around saying his goodbyes to everyone who was special to him, and when he got to John, he gave John a gift. Uh, Hal infused John's body with a lump of green energy to fix his spine. So now John could walk again, but he was still relegated to a uh, a regular guy, you know, who who Kyle would visit now and then. And it was actually kind of nice, as now John got a chance to just live a normal life on Earth and focus on his architecture business. It didn't last though, because DC still didn't really know what they wanted to do with John. Uh, so they gave him the ability to tap into that power Hal gave him and use it in defense of others. Which sounds great, but only in defense of others. It was like a gun that fired by itself, but only when someone other than John needed help. So if you attack John and only John, he has no powers. If you attack this person standing next to John, he has powers. It really, it, it, you, as you can probably tell, it didn't work out, and they eventually had him burn out his power and go back to a wheelchair. It was a fight with fatality, actually. Okay, then came probably the biggest thing to happen to Green Lantern up to this point. I, not just John, forget just John, Green Lantern in general. And that is the Justice League cartoon began in 2001. Up to this point, Green Lantern was popular and known among avid comic readers, but basically nobody else. You know, there was almost no Green Lantern exposure in other media at all, except for the odd thing here and there. And and then here's an ongoing television show with a Green Lantern as a main character, and it's Jon Stewart. Uh, we got the chance to talk to Jon's voice actor, Phil Lamar, way back in episode 20 of The Lantern Cast, and... He told us straight out, John got picked over someone like Hal because if the Justice League were to form for the first time today, it wouldn't fly to have all white men. And that's why they made choices like replacing Aquaman with Hawkgirl and replacing Hal Jordan with Jon Stewart, but the show didn't suffer for it. If anything, Jon Stewart and Green Lantern in general benefited from it, and all of a sudden, an entire generation of kids knew who Green Lantern was. When I lived in New York, kids who couldn't be more than 11 would point at my shirt with the symbol on it and say, Green Lantern, hey, it's Green Lantern, when I'm just standing on a corner waiting for the light to change. And there, there were Green Lantern toys everywhere, Green Lantern all over general merchandise, like bed sheets and party supplies, and, and Green Lantern in video games with the rest of the Justice League, and it was John, every single one of it. It was John. Through the entire life of the Ryan Reynolds movie, from the moment the casting was announced to the day it finally left theaters, people both in person and all over the internet would say some form of, I thought Green Lantern was black. 
And it's because of the Justice League cartoon. And don't think DC didn't notice this. Uh, in Green Lantern number 147, cover date April 2002, uh, titled Standing Up, uh, it was it was an introspective issue, actually, which, you know, I guess by mosaic standards, no, it wasn't. But by, by Green Lantern 2002 standards, yes, it was. Um, but it was an introspective issue focusing on John, where he works out his personal problems. You know, he, uh, Kyle used the ion power. He, he was ion for the first time now. Uh, he used the power to cure John's spine the right way, unlike Hal's rush job. Um, but John was kind of subconsciously punishing himself for something he did as a child that resulted in the death of his sister. And honestly, I don't even know if he had a sister up to this point or if it was retconned in. But it was a kind of out-of-left-field revelation that it was very much a means to an end, which was just to get John walking again once and for all. So, you know what? I'm cool with it. <laughs> so now we've got John walking again for reals this time, and John remained the occasional backup character to Kyle for about another year. You know, he's, he was still a regular guy at this point, um, just running his architecture business, until the Brothers Keeper slash hate crime storyline happened. And this is the one where Kyle's uh, assistant, Terry, got beaten almost to death for being gay. And it made Kyle almost lose his faith in humanity to the point that he needed to take a break from Earth for a little while. So he headed out into space, Jade went with him, and before they left, he did the one thing that fans have been waiting for since Green Lantern number 50, since Emerald Twilight took the core away. He finally gave John a ring. Green Lantern 156, cover date January 2003, titled Walking Tall, had John Stewart front and center on the cover wearing his Justice League cartoon uniform, which he still uses today. And it's pr I honestly, that is my favorite John Stewart costume, if not my favorite Green Lantern costume, period. But it was an issue all about John settling back into being a Green Lantern, catching up with some people, and even tackling some bigger issues like human trafficking, which, I mean, all, they, they treaded exceptionally lightly on this topic, so don't expect anything Mosaic-esque from it if you go and search it out. Um, take it as a kind of a nod to where the character's been and nothing really more than that. Which, I mean, I guess it's kind of like the introspective issue that got him to stand up again. Like, it's, it, you can see it clearly having its roots in Mosaic, but it's, it's a lot more concerned with being just the mainstream superhero book. So, they, they, uh, they reinforce that it's, that human trafficking is awful, but they don't delve into any real severe implications or, or, uh, the weight of it, you know, but. Anyway, it was a good issue anyway. I think Dale Yusham drew it. But um, all right, the very next month, John Starr continues to rise here. The very next month, John joins the comic Justice League in JLA number 76, cover date February 2003, in a story called Picking Up the Pieces. The team had just returned from its huge story that took like a year to tell, and and... The adventure resulted in a membership shakeup, 
and we got another explanation for Kyle Rayner not being around so that John could step in for him. Uh, the sad thing is that after Green Lantern 156, we didn't get any more Jon Stewart solo issues in Green Lantern at all. Uh, or even any that co-starred him. You know, he was he was still just as much a background character with his ring as he was without it. And they instead focused on Kyle stories. I mean, he was he still popped in towards the end there a little bit. He and Kyle had like this forced superhero fight in the skies over Washington DC and Kyle beat the crap out of him, which, you know, it was something, I guess, but it wasn't until Green Lantern Rebirth that uh, ran from cover dates December 2004 to May 2005 that John would get some significant page time and actual use. Um, you know, this is where Jeff Johns first introduced the visual aspect of John's architectural mind guiding the use of his ring and the way that every single construct he ever makes is fully designed with with all the actual moving pieces it need to really work instead of just a lump of green energy that's shaped like something. And that's that I think is significant in and of itself because that's been that visual style has been synonymous for John ever since. So I I thought that was worth throwing in here as a noteworthy thing. Unfortunately from here John started to decline again. Now, immediately after Rebirth, a new Green Lantern ongoing series started featuring Hal Jordan and John's favorite guy, Hal Jordan. <laughs> it introduced early on the concept of John being Hal's sector partner, so you'd expect a, a kind of buddy cop approach to the book, you know, with John co-starring. And it never happened. He was in there a little early on and during crossovers, but it, it, it didn't happen. Even when DC launched a second title called Green Lantern Corps, uh, cover date August 2006, John wasn't a part of it. To reduce his presence even further, John's stint in the JLA book lasted until Infinite Crisis ends that series, which was around April of 2006. So at least in that case, he didn't leave the cast, the book just ended. The very next month... <laughs> The Justice League cartoon, at that point titled Justice League Unlimited, ended May 2006. So <laughs> it was a really sad time <laughs> for a Jon Stewart fan to be living in because all you had this tremendous fall from grace. <laughs> well, I, I shouldn't say a fall from grace. He, he went from really having great exposure to not anymore. Although there is something to be said for the fact that all those Jon Stewart fans that grew up watching the Justice League cartoon are still out there. And I have my all-in-one series box set of that show sitting on the shelf behind me, ready to be viewed and shared with anyone at any time. So it endures, just as Mosaic does. But from there, Jon really doesn't get the spotlight again until Green Lantern 49. Th yeah, think, think about this. Think about that. <laughs> Mosaic ended around Green Lantern 49, and then it looped back around again to the next Green Lantern 49. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jesus. But anyway, cover date, February 2010. Uh, it's a solo issue during the Blackest Night event, which you've heard me rant about on the Lantern cast. I, it wasn't a very good issue. But, you know, John encounters the planet Xanchi, 
returned as a zombie world, which frankly does sound a lot cooler than it ended up being, but still it was something, and it did serve to give him some degree of closure, so so hopefully future writers won't use the zanchy guilt as a crutch for the character as much as it sometimes can be. And after Blackest Night, John is positioned as one of the main characters of the Green Lantern Corps ongoing, uh, starting with issue 48, cover date of July 2010, and that's where he's been ever since. He actually got a very nice solo issue in Green Lantern Corps 61, cover date of August 2011, which was actually my favorite single issue of that year, and I'd recommend to any Jon Stewart fan, really, or just anybody that wants a short, good Green Lantern story. That incarnation of the series ended with issue 63, and just this past September relaunched with a new number one, and still features Jon Stewart as a main character. Um, as I record this in March 2012, we're coming up on the release of Green Lantern Corps number seven, yes, yeah, seven, uh, which is billed more or less as a Jon Stewart solo story about the personal impacts of war, uh, which spins directly into the next story arc that I have a feeling will be a, uh, a kind of modern spin on the old concept of Jon versus the establishment, which is something that was super prevalent in the, the days of the character's introduction. Still, I can only speculate to the quality and content of the issues that haven't come out yet, but one thing is certain. For the first time in almost two decades, a good writer is using Jon Stewart as a main character in an ongoing series, and for at least the next few months, I can look forward into walking into a comic shop and seeing a new Green Lantern core issue with my favorite Green Lantern front and center on the cover, and know it's backed by a quality creative team. And that's just about gonna do it, I think. This this has been a very interesting project. This is the first time I've done a solo podcast, which is painfully apparent to all of you listening because I kind of suck at it. Something I've said before, and I'll say it again, and I'll keep saying it forever, is that I have only found a very small number of podcasters who are actually good at doing the one-man show kind of thing, and I would not put myself as one of them. But uh, but no, this was this was fun. This was emotionally taxing. <laughs> this was time-consuming. I learned a lot about you know not just about John and about about uh, this series, but kind of about like myself and my own preferences and habits and tendencies and my own relationship with this medium and and I also learned never to promise time sensitive things on a recording that you're going to share with the world because it never works out because I really did intend to have so many of these in the can that no matter what happens they would all come out on time and that very blatantly never ha happened it didn't, it didn't never happen it just fell apart at the end um, and part of that was just, you know, life got in the way, and to a lesser degree, I just, I didn't want to finish, because, uh, and that sounds bad, I didn't want it to be over, because now that Mosaic is done, this is the end, this is the very last thing of its kind in terms of Jon Stewart and this world, because they really 
don't bring up the mosaic again. I mean, there's one moment I remember early in Kyle's series where um, where they make mention of the mosaic. I think John tells him about it a little bit, and I think one of the berserkers comes to New York to get John and beat him up for revenge over the failed experiment that is the mosaic. But, you know, that's... I, as far as I know, that's the last time it really comes up. I mean, I haven't read the Dark Stars. I'm, I think I'm going to eventually. So hopefully, there's something about it in there. Like I don't, I am not looking for an entire book about it or subplots or anything. I just like to see this character acknowledge that it happened and reference it. Because I honestly, you know, before the relaunch the big DC New 52 relaunch, I was not sure if Mosaic was still technically considered part of continuity. And now that the relaunch has happened, I definitely don't know. I, I, although I'm inclined to think it's probably not. Because the changes in John, like, they're gone by the time we see him again after this book is over. Um, and that's not, like, the Mosaic, you know, I, I mentioned before in zero the zero hour issue of Green Lantern, Kyle blows up Oa. We never saw the Mosaic City there. We never saw anybody else there. It was just a barren, empty planet. So there's no, there as far as I know, there's never been any word on what's happened to those cities or if DC decided, you know what, we're just gonna move on from this and pretend it didn't happen. So if, actually, if any of you out there can answer that question for me like did dc ever address the mosaic after 18 you know where did it happen i would love to track that down and read it but yeah i guess that's just about it i'm i'm happy that you guys took this journey with me i'm happy that i got to hear from people that we don't usually hear from in terms of feedback to the regular lantern cast and you know as i record this one of our newer forum members at thecomicforums.com, uh, he goes by Bloom, he has just started working his way through the issues and episodes one by one, and he's been commenting on them as he goes. It's kind of kind of echoes Gerard Jones's sentiments in the letters column at the end of this series that he hopes that these back issues will always be out there for new people to find and enjoy, and they very blatantly are, because... I found them and I enjoy them and now I'm helping I've helped at least a few people have the same experience as I am and just like these back issues which will always be out there in comic shops and in people's collections and yard sales and all and eBay and the like these episodes will always be out there to be a companion piece to them so hopefully as bloom has proven people will continue to to read Mosaic down the line and maybe even find this little show and and take something from it that will enhance the reading experience. Not saying that everything I've said and done here makes it better and I have to think I've made it worse for some people but I like to think that that this isn't just me talking to my monitor which is a really this is one of the advantages to talking on Skype to someone. I'm not just talking to nothing like a crazy person. This is such an awkward thing to do. <laughs> Solo podcasting is so trippy and weird. Um, <laughs> what the hell was I just saying? Duh. <laughs>
Oh yeah, I I like to think that I'm at least helping get word out about a book that, honest to God, deserves all of the eyes that it can get. Kind of like the peepers. <laughs> so I guess at this point I'm just kind of rambling because I don't really want Mosaic to be over, but it is, and so is this series of episodes. So, so once again, thank you, all of you who left feedback and those of you who never left feedback but took the journey with me whether you read the issues or you haven't and if you haven't and you've been enjoying this series of of podcast episodes track down these issues you'll find them all fairly cheap basically anywhere you look don't start with the christmas issue <laughs> that's that's the consensus of myself and of chad but you know, find those issues, especially the ones where it's just one and done stories, and just have fun with it, have fun thinking about it, and and just say, have fun realizing like this is what comics and superhero fiction can be if it wants to be, if the creators and the fans want it to be, and no, enjoy. Thank you, thank you for listening. And hmm. yeah, no, I guess I guess it's time to just fade out into the music. God, that sounds so lame. Good night, everybody. <laughs>